Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. To start off the message, I'm going to do something that I really like to do, which is I'm going to read the entire passage this morning, almost all of Matthew 19, at least half of it to you guys, as a way of starting. I think it's helpful when we get the whole context of what the story is that we're reading when we read it in full. So if you have your Bibles with you, whether you actually have a a Bible physically with you or if you want to pull out your phones, I'm going to be reading to you this morning from Matthew 19. I'm going to start in verse 13 and I'm going to go to the end of the chapter. All right, let's read it together. It says, Then the people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Just then a man came to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to uh, to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which one? He inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept since I was young, said the man. What still do I lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the man had heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter said to him, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much as and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Lord Jesus, As I meditated on this passage this week, I was reminded again of the simple truth. Your words are the words of life. Your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And Jesus, thank you that thousands of years later, we as a church gather, we read what you did in your ministry, the things that you said. And God, thank you that it has the power to change our lives. So Lord, as we humbly posture ourselves before your word this morning, we ask that your spirit would work among us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, the first thing that I want to point out in this passage is the contrast between the disciples' dealings with children and then the rich man. 
You know, it says that people brought children to Jesus who by this time in his ministry was well-respected and established by many people. And as the children approached, the disciples, though it doesn't specify who, I almost wonder if I know who it might've been, Peter, uh, stepped in to save the day. Or so they thought that that's what they were doing. And they rebuked the children. Remember back to Pastor Lauren's message regarding Peter's declaration of who Jesus, is, who Jesus was. Well, by this point, the disciples had grasped that Jesus was no ordinary man. In fact, he was like no other. He was the Messiah, the Son of God. And so to them, they found that part of their responsibility was to determine who was valuable enough for Jesus' time. And so they took it upon themselves in this moment to make a judgment call and said, kids are not worthy of Jesus' time or his blessing or his kindness. And what happens in the story? Well, what's interesting is that Jesus turns around and rebukes them. They took it on themselves to make this call. It's almost like when kids take on the responsibility of parenting other kids. And then the parent steps in and sets the record straight. Actually, that's, that's my job. I can handle it, Jesus says. So he rebukes the disciples and he says, let the children come to me. But now I want to contrast that. As we read on, we discover that another man approached Jesus immediately after his conversation with the children. And what do we know about this man? Well, we know that he was a rich man, which meant that he had power. We know that he was a young man, which meant that he was full of potential. Luke mentions that he was a ruler, which means that he had some sort of influence in his culture, the ability to make things happen. And we also know that he was upright. He had respect, as we're going to find out uh, later on in this passage. This man was an upright man. I want you to notice that there's no uh, rebuking by the disciples in this moment. They don't walk up and go, hey, 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 Jesus' time is too valuable for you. On the contrary, what do they do? They allow him to approach Jesus because here's a man who could aid their cause. Here's a man who could help them. This is a great catch. You don't let people like this get away easily. You want these type of people to come into the fold. But I want you to notice what Jesus does. He absolutely astonishes his disciples by laying out a cost that is so high it sends this man walking away sad. As in, Jesus says, uh, or they say, rich, young, influential, and upright ruler is worthy of Jesus' time. But Jesus flips it upside down. That's why it's called the upside down kingdom. Note what Matthew 19.30 says, the very end of our passage for this morning. Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first in the kingdom of heaven. Here's the truth, is that the way that Jesus views people's worth, their significance, their potential, is radically different from the way that we naturally look at the world. Jesus is always taking the way that we see things and just flipping it on its head, leaving us going, oh, I did not see it going that way. Jesus looks at this man and says, here's the call, and he walks away sad. So let me ask you, do you ever catch yourself evaluating whether someone else is worth Jesus' time, Jesus' kindness, Jesus' forgiveness and healing? Or better yet, do you ever find yourself evaluating someone is worth your time or your kindness 
or your forgiveness. Let us never forget, church, that we serve the Lord of the upside-down kingdom. And so we must follow in his footsteps, and there should be never a spirit of favoritism or partiality among us. But that's just an intro. Let's move on to the main point of today's sermon. And I want to focus for the rest of our time on this young man, this rich young ruler, as he's often called. So we're going to look at, primarily, we're going to be jumping back and forth between the story as told in Matthew, as well as as told in Mark. They're very, very similar, but they each bring out a different component of the story that I think is beneficial for us this morning. So, this man starts by asking a question from Jesus. He says, teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And you know, I believe that this is the wrong question to be asking. It stood out to me early on as I was reading this passage, I think that this man is asking the wrong question. And I'm going to come back to why I believe that at the end of this message. But on the surface, it sure does sound like an important question, doesn't it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? I'd say it's an important question. And furthermore, the way in which the man asked the question indicates that he's actually asking Jesus genuinely. Look at how Mark records it. It says, as Jesus started on his way, he's just walking away from praying with the kids. As he was on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him and said, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man is eager. He's running to Jesus. This man is humble. He's kneeling before Jesus. This man genuinely wants to know, how can I be saved? How can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus zeroes in on one specific word that this man uses. It's interesting. He zeroes in on the word good. So Jesus responds to him, why do you call me good? Answered Jesus. No one is good except for God alone. So what's Jesus getting at in this passage? What's he saying here? Why does he ask this man about his choice of words? See, some people have taken this verse to mean that Jesus was refuting that he was good. Almost as if Jesus was arguing, hey, hey, I'm not good. And if Jesus is saying that he isn't good, then he's not sinless. And if he's not sinless, then he's not God. I remember the first time that I read this passage, I actually remember the first time I read The Rich Young Ruler, and that was my question. Jesus, why are you refuting that you're good? But that's actually not what Jesus is doing. Remember just a couple messages ago, we discovered that Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus doesn't stop him from giving him that title. He tells him to keep it to himself, but he doesn't refute it. So clearly Jesus here isn't refuting that he's good. So what is he doing? Rather, Jesus is asking the man, by what standard do you look at goodness? What's your standard for that? How do you qualify that claim? See, that's very interesting to me. Jesus says, why do you call me good? So I want to give you an analogy. See, recently I was at uh, a get-together, and my friends brought their new dog, and I really liked it. I really did. I'm actually secretly praying for a dog for Christmas. Honey. <laughs> Join me in praying for that, please. <clears throat> so suppose I was chatting to one of you after the service and you said, and I said, now that was a good dog. 
And you were curious and you responded by asking, well, why was the dog good? Why was this dog good? And I said, well, maybe it's because, you know, it reminded me of my childhood dog. And so it just brought up good feelings. Well, truthfully, what you should know about my childhood dog is he peed on everything. And we got rid of it very shortly because we had to replace the carpets and then that was, that was it, it was done. But maybe I was comparing it, you know, to a dog that I once loved. Or, you know, perhaps I'd say that it was good because half the time I hang out with people who are super obsessed with cats. So to just see a dog, it was just, <laughs> it was just a good change of, uh, you know, or perhaps I was comparing this dog that I was hanging out to to the dog that almost bit me the other day and I was saying, this dog was good. That one was bad and that really is true. I almost got bit by a dog. So as far as dogs go, you know, this was a good one. You see, good can be a relative term. Good can be relative. Good compared to what? What's your standard for goodness? Jesus' response to this man is, what's your standard? What are you measuring this by? You see, people use that word good a lot. Lots of people would say about themselves, I'm a good person. Have you ever heard that? I'm a good person. I've had many conversations with people, both Christians and non-Christians alike over the years about eternity. And when I ask them about such things, I'll often hear a response like this. Well, I'm I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I I try to do good things, I'm honest, I work hard, I love my family, I don't litter, I give to charity, I come to church most of the time, and, you know, et cetera, that kind of thing. You ever notice that at funerals we never say, that was not a good person? At least I've never heard that out loud at a funeral. And Christians, when we share our testimony, doesn't it often sound like once upon a time, I was not so good, and then I met Jesus, and now I am good. That's often how our testimonies are structured. So where am I going with this? Well, here's the reflection that I want us to pause on. Jesus asks you and me today, church. He says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? Jesus wants to know, am I good among many? Am I a good teacher? Lots of people think that Jesus is a good teacher. No one's denying that he shaped history. Lots of people think that Jesus was successful in what he wanted to accomplish if he wanted to be remembered. Is that our standard? Why do we call Jesus good? Or, second question, why do we call ourselves good? What's our standard there? Am I good uh, compared to, don't look at them right now, but am I good compared to you know who? Compared to what they've done, I'm pretty good. I mean, they haven't really succeeded in much. Look at what I've done. I must be pretty good. What's our standard? Is it other people or is it God? Is it what the culture tells us is good or is what the word of God says our standard? That's a question that I think deserves a little bit of reflection. Although we won't have time right now. All right, well, how does this conversation continue? Now Jesus has turned the tables on this young man. What's your standard for goodness? Why do you call me good? Then Jesus continues. If you want to enter life, Jesus says to the man, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquires. 
So the man is curious. Oh, okay, well, which ones? And Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, said the man. See, we need to look at the law and the greatest commandment. The man responds by saying, all of these things I have kept. Those words must have felt so good in the moment, hey? Jesus, all of these things I've kept. It's almost like at this point, my hand would start going up like, are we about to high five? And then Jesus continues, leaves the guy hanging. Do you hate when, by the way, do you hate when you're left hanging with a high five? Me too. It's a terrible feeling. Okay, that's off track. You see, he thinks that he's passed the test. He's, he's expecting to be welcomed to the club. Welcome in, rich young ruler. Good job, you passed the test, but not quite yet. And what's interesting is, the passage even indicates that the man, he anticipated that that wasn't the end of what Jesus was gonna say. For he continues, he says, all of these things I have kept, this young man says, what still do I lack? This man had something wanting in his soul. He knew that the conversation wasn't over because if it was that easy, he could have just solved that without asking Jesus, what do I do to inherit eternal life? He would have had it figured out, but he knew, this young man knew that something was still lacking. What still do I lack? You know what's really interesting to me, and this was a new thought for me as I studied this week, but why does Jesus choose the commandments that he lists? Why those particular ones? I mean, we've got a big Old Testament, we've got a lot of laws. You know this when you've tried to read through, you know, Leviticus. You go, wow, there's a lot in here, some serious content. Why does Jesus narrow it down and give this man this specific list of commandments? To refresh your memory, Jesus says, you must not murder, you must not commit adultery, no stealing, no false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what Jesus says to him. So why those in particular? Is this some sort of screening test to get into heaven? Because if it is, I would urge all of us to go home today, get a flashcard like back in, you know, in your school days and write these things down and just really make sure that you memorize these six specific things. Because that's our way. That's the way in through the door is these six commandments. I don't think that, we all know that's not what Jesus is doing. This is not a screening test. So why does he name these specific laws? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to back it up a little bit. All the way back to Exodus 20, 1 to 17, commonly known as the 10 commandments. The 10 commandments read as follows. No other gods before, I'm paraphrasing. I'm not gonna read the entire actual verses, okay? This is, paraphrase. No other gods before me, no images in the forms of idols, no taking the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath, honor your father and mother, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, and do not covet. So looking at this list, you can see the ones that Jesus gives the young man, they're highlighted in blue. Those are the ones, those are the five, and then Jesus adds a sixth onto the list. Why does he do that? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, to answer that question, 
as I am going somewhere with this, I promise, to answer that question, you need to bear with me for a moment. Jesus once was asked what the greatest commandment was in all of the law. It's actually in Matthew 22. In a few ver- uh, chapters from now, we'll get to that. Do you remember what Jesus' answer was when he was asked, what are the greatest commandments in the law? And Jesus said, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's found in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. And then the second one, what did Jesus say? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's right. Leviticus 19, 18. That's how Jesus said, he said, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. They're the plumb line. These are the greatest commandments. Okay, so we need to look back at the Ten Commandments again. When looking at the Ten Commandments, we actually see a similar pattern. So I built a table. It's super high-tech. Next slide. Whoa. I didn't build a table. I was just lying, which is on the list. I shouldn't have done that. There it is. Do you see this high-tech development that I made? Yep, it's pretty good. All right, let's take a look at the Ten Commandments. And I want you to notice here, this is the key to understanding why Jesus gives this man those specific five things and adds the six. Because the sixth one, love your neighbor as yourself, actually sets up a section of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's a cap or it's a seal. It goes over them. So if you look at the Ten Commandments and you break them down, there's actually two categories within the Ten Commandments. The first category is God or inward focus commandments. This is the love the Lord your God with all your heart. And in those commandments you hear, no other gods before me, no idols, no taking the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and do not covet. Those are inward focused commandments. Those are the ones that we with our eye have a really hard time detecting in someone else's life. But the Lord, the Lord sees those. Those are the God-centered commandments. And they're all God-centered, don't get me wrong. When you love people, the New Testament's clear, when you love people, you're loving God. And when you love God, you want to love people. But just, you can see that they're broken up into two sections. The second section, these are the people or the outward-focused commandments summarized by love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Those are honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. And do not give false testimony. Those are the ones that oftentimes we can see. Sometimes we don't. They can be hidden. But we, can, we stand a chance to see those in someone's life. So what is Jesus doing? Why does he start by running this man through the outward screening test? Well... Notice how distraught the disciples are because this man passed those tests. When Jesus asked him those five things and love your neighbor as yourself, he passed it and the disciples were distraught. They asked, how can anyone be saved? Because by all outward standards, this was an upright man. His wealth was accumulated not by sin, not by being a scoundrel like the tax collectors. This was a godly man. Surely, his affluence and his, his prominence were a result of his faithfulness to God. That's how they looked at it. If you honor God, he will bless you. He will make your path straight. And so they're looking at this man, and they're going, surely, 
The reason why he is where he is is because he's been faithful to God. And they're truly perplexed because the question is, if he can't be saved, if this righteous young man can't be saved, what hope do we have? Jesus, if, if he can't, how am I going to get in? He's checked all the boxes. You know, oftentimes when I read this story, I've imagined that this young man was kind of smug and arrogant, kind of like he walked up to Jesus, arms crossed, you know, what do I got to do to get into heaven? But I was challenged this week when I read it to see his humility. Remember, he got on his knees before Jesus. He ran up to Jesus, got on his knees and asked how he could be saved. And the more I read it, the more I'm convinced that I probably would have liked this guy. And I bet you would have too. He would have been one of the good guys. Look at how he passed the test. Look at how upright he was. Look at how integral he was in his business. Look at the way that he, he honored his parents. And you see, the one thing that we fail to realize is, I don't think that this rich young ruler heard Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I don't think so. Because if he would have, he would have heard Jesus take these laws to a whole nother level. You see, he said, Lord, all these things I've done since I was young, I've passed this test, Lord. But in reality, did he hear Jesus' words when Jesus said, truly I tell you. You have heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you that if you even have hatred in your heart towards a brother, you're guilty of murder. Or yet again, Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but if you've even looked at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. I don't know, maybe he did hear those words, but I kind of doubt it. See, even by those standards alone, I don't think that this man was righteous. He appeared to be righteous to those around him. But then Jesus doesn't leave it there. He continues on, and now Jesus is going to give us the true standard for goodness. Back to Jesus asking, why do you call me good? What's your standard? Now Jesus is gonna yet again flip the tables and go, here is the standard for goodness. Jesus answered the man, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be perfect, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And when this young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. You see, he passed the outward test which we can sometimes see, but he didn't re, uh, realize when Jesus would begin to reveal how this man was doing on the inward test that he didn't score so well. That's the inward test, the one that only God can see. So why does this man walk away sad? That's really the big question. Why does he walk away sad? Well, it's because Jesus just revealed to him that he had an idol in his life. He walked away sad because he had great wealth. He had money. He had affluence, influence, power, comfort. All of these things had become an idol in this young man's life. These things prevented him from saying yes to the call that Jesus had for him. And I wonder, how many times has this story played out in history? Well, uh, let's be clear here. There are many good people in the world. Lots of good people in the world. People that are generous with their time and with their money. 
People that fight for justice because they wanna make the world a better place. People that would give the shirt off their own back to help someone else in need. People that would risk their own life for the safety and well-being of another. There is so many good people in this world, both Christian and non-Christian alike. We can look around and we can see it. There are people who are doing good things, but let's also be clear. What Jesus is saying here is that unless those good works proceed from a heart of love to the Lord your God first and surrender to him, they don't stand a chance at saving us. How do we inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you can do good things, but don't count on those good things to save you. See, this message is actually really basic. It's really basic, and I thank the Lord for that. I thanked him as I read the rich young ruler passage this week, and I said, thank you, Lord, for reminding me once again of the most essential things that I need to get into my mind and get into my heart, that I am not saved because of the good things that I do, I cannot buy heaven. However, Christians, our lives should be filled with good works. That's clear also in the New Testament. We need to be about doing good works. It stands to reason that if we are walking in the footsteps of Christ, we ought to be leading the charge in good works in this world, right? In finding ways to be the hands and feet of Jesus, in doing the type of ministry that he did, in loving the least of these, in forgiveness, and being integral in our lives, having good character. But the question is, what motivates our good works? That's the question. What motivates our good works? Is it to earn our way into heaven? By doing these good works, are we really hoping Yes, we are doing a good work. We are putting a down payment there, but we're hoping at some point to be rewarded from, from someone for these good works as a way of getting into heaven. Or perhaps are our good works a way to uh, gain recognition from others? Are we doing these good things and do we like it when other people see them? Do we like it when there's mention of the good things that we've done? Is that what our heart is after when we seek to do good things? Or perhaps is it to get back, you know, I do a good work for you, you know, I help my neighbor, but then I hold that in the back of my mind just waiting for an opportunity where I can say, hey, I helped you that one time, now you gotta help me. Or is it given freely out of a heart of love? And lastly, what motivates our good works? Is it to create our own heaven on earth? I want to give a, just a little warning here out of uh, the conclusion of how Jesus finishes this passage. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. That's the picture that Jesus paints. And yes, we are called by Jesus to do good works to make this world a better place. But when that pursuit, when doing good works, when bringing justice loses sight of the fact that ultimate justice can only be found when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. When we pursue making our own heaven on earth, it is a vain pursuit. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be about action. Of course we need to be about action. But when our action, when we take justice into our own hands, we go outside of what Jesus is calling us to live in. Jesus says, remember one day, 
I will return and I will, wrong, I will make right every wrong that was done. I will wipe away every tear. In this world, you will have troubles. Jesus said that it wasn't about bringing heaven now and making it perfect by our own efforts. We do what we can by the power of the Spirit, but then we wait for the one who will come and bring justice and set all things right. That's what Jesus teaches us, but that is so important. What motivates our good works? Is it, are we motivated by loving the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and our strength? And then out of that, we respond by saying, yes, Lord, I want to be obedient to the process of being sanctified. I want to be obedient to you. And that would mean following in your footsteps, doing good works. So, in the remaining time that we have together, I would like to share three practical takeaways from this story. Just three, but these three things I think can have, big impa- can have a big impact on our hearts and in our church. So the three things that I want you to remember is that one, we receive the kingdom. We do not earn the kingdom. Number two, Jesus loved, and so we should love. And then number three, receiving the call to follow Jesus requires a miracle. So number one, we must receive the kingdom of heaven, not earn the kingdom of heaven. So remember at the start of this message, I said that I believe that the rich young man's opening question was the wrong one. Well, I'll tell you why I believe that. See, looking at Mark's account of this story again, which follows the same order of Matthew's telling of this story, notice that Jesus' conversation with the rich young man is immediately after when he prays for the children when he takes the children into his arms and he blesses them. And what did Jesus say to the children? Jesus said, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. See, the kingdom of heaven must be received. It cannot be bought. It cannot be earned. Does the number 111 mean anything to anyone today? 111. You know what it is? That's the, that's the amount of days left until Christmas. Oh yeah, you better believe it. Well, fun fact about Christmas in our house, it starts in July. My two-year-old's number one most requested song, I want to hippopotamus for Christmas. I want to hippopotamus. And if we don't put it on, oh, heaven forbid we don't put on I want to hippopotamus. That is his jam. Okay, 111 days till Christmas. And I want you to think about the way that a child receives a gift on Christmas. See, we have four boys, my wife Ellie and I. We have four boys and never once have I gotten the response after I give them a present. They rip it open, they look at it, and then they look at me and go, what do I owe you, dad? I wish sometimes. I'm like, if you wanted to know that was $37, you can pay me later. Just kidding. No, I never even expect to hear, what do I owe you after giving them a gift? No no kids ask that question because they get the concept. Oh, look at this present in shiny wrapping. Let me destroy it and then celebrate the plunder I have received. They are so excited to open that gift. They don't even think to ask, what do I owe you? The other thing that I've noticed on Christmas morning is how quickly a child can toss aside one present as soon as another present, still in its wrappings, is put in front of them. Have you ever noticed that? 
You give them a present, they're like, wow, this is the coolest thing. We have one more. It's gone. Like it doesn't even exist. They forget it. What's that thing? Oh, there's a new one with wrapping still on it. This will be great. You see, a kid has no problem letting go of what's in their hands to take something better. Or, not always better, but, you know, to take something new. And I believe that that's what Jesus is asking us to do. When Jesus says, go and sell all of your possessions, we read that and we go, you mean I have to, oh, I don't want to part with that. Oh, that's not fair of you to ask. We're not receiving the kingdom of heaven like a child at that point, are we? Jesus walks up to us with this new shiny present and the reaction that he's looking for is, the old is out and in with the new Lord. What could be better than eternity spent with you? What could be better than receiving the kingdom of heaven and to take it a step further? The heart that Jesus is looking for is one that holds the gift giver higher than the gift. Our inheritance, church, the thing that we press forward to receive is none other than Jesus Christ. He is our inheritance. We get all of eternity to be with him. That is what Jesus is asking us to do, to receive the kingdom of heaven like a child. And so, are you trying to earn favor with God? Are you trying to earn your way into the kingdom of heaven by giving the Lord I'll do these things for you. I'll, I'll do this. Let's agree. Let's write down a contract. I'll do this. And then I get to have the kingdom of heaven. No, that's the wrong question. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, a classic verse. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is a gift. All right, let's move on to the second one. The second one is that Jesus loved and so should we. We might be tempted to believe that Jesus loved putting this man in his place. Almost like Jesus looked forward to, oh yes, ask me so that I can crush your, your hopes. Like he just really enjoyed watching the rich young man walk away sad. But again, if we look at how Mark records the story, what does Mark say? Jesus asked him his first set of questions or, or gives him like the do not steal, do not murder. And then the guy goes, what still do I lack? And immediately after it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Oh, that gripped my heart this week. Jesus looked at this man and he loved him. He looked at this follower who came so close. Jesus loved this man as he loves all people and his heart was for this man and he wanted this man to follow him. That's why he said, go and get rid of all of these things they're blocking you from the kingdom of heaven. Then come and follow me. Jesus wasn't enjoying watching him walk away sad. Jesus longed for him to make the right choice. He was motivated out of a deep love for this man. You know, here's a side note. I believe it was Francis Chani. He's often said, the goal is not to be convicted. The goal is to turn towards God. Yet I see oftentimes in the church and in my own life this culture where we almost crave a strong message. We almost crave walking, like I want to come to church and I just want to be punched in the gut with truth. I know when I was doing renovations, I would sometimes listen to hours of sermons 
and I would try to find sermons that just set the calling right up there and I would feel so convicted because it gave me an emotional response and that's what I was after. I wanted an emotional response. But the point here isn't to go, oh good, look, he walked away sad. Jesus is like, take note boys, that's how you do it. You know, make them sad and then have them walk away. Jesus wanted him to follow. Jesus wanted the reaction to be obedience. It's not about feeling convicted. It's about obeying God. Conviction is part of the process though. So here's what I want to sum this point up by saying, Jesus loved and so should we. We need to love like Jesus. Truth, or sorry, love requires truth. Love requires truth. I think sometimes we've watered love down so much today that we strip it of all truth and what is it anymore? It's not love. If I, if we, if we truly believe that this is the word of God, if we truly hang off of these words and we go, this is truth, it's not loving for us to hide that. And Jesus didn't hide it either. He spoke truth because he loved. But on the flip side, if that point immediately goes, yes, yes, we need truth, I'll give you a warning. Truth must be spoken in love. It's not about, yay, here's my opportunity to share my opinions. Here's my opportunity to win this argument. What about winning the person? You know, people don't care what we know until they know that we care about them, until they see that we love them, until they see that we don't look at ourselves as good and them as bad, until we're humble and we speak the truth, but we speak it in love and in gentleness. That's, the, that's how Jesus loved. And then lastly, because I need to wrap this up, receiving the call to follow requires a miracle. We've seen this over and over and over again in the book of Matthew, Jesus calling people to follow him. But last time I spoke, I spoke on, that para, or on the passage where Jesus was approached by two men Come follow me. And Jesus said, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus is calling these people to follow him, but the call is so great, so hard, so high. I'm getting ahead of myself here. What I've learned this week as I've been sitting in this passage, just allowing it to speak to me, allowing the Lord to use this passage to shape me, I'm praying that the Lord would use this passage to shape our church. I realize that we are all like this rich young ruler. All of us are like this rich young ruler. All of us have to wrestle with these things that we don't want to let go of. All of us have to come to grips with this fact that we're not quite as good as we want others to think we are. All of us have to come to that point where we realize that we're like this rich young ruler especially when we judge ourselves by the standard of God. Who then can be saved? That's what the disciples asked. They're just astonished. You just put the bar way out of reach. Who can be saved, Lord? And I love Jesus' response. Jesus' response is so simple. He says, with man, it's impossible. So let that sink in for a second. With man, it's impossible. You know, that actually encourages me. At least I can give up trying now on my own because I know it's impossible. 
But then Jesus concludes by saying, but with God, all things are possible. See, the rec- receiving the call to follow Jesus, to actually walk that out in faith for a lifetime requires nothing less than a miracle. And Jesus says, good thing I'm well stocked on miracles. Good thing that I can equip you. Good thing that I can fill you with the Spirit so that you can be faithful to your call. Good thing that he was faithful to his call so that we can be faithful to our call. Amen? The cost of following Jesus is so high, it's, it's flat out impossible. And there's no good people or bad people. There's only a good God and sinners saved by grace in the church. So I was really encouraged by that and I, wish, I just want to conclude by praying. So if you want to bow your head with me, let's take this to the Lord. Jesus, I want to thank you for your faithfulness to have this conversation with this young man. And then God in your sovereignty, it's now for us to read in the word and we see how you loved people. We see how you, how you did discipleship. So different often than how I do discipleship. Jesus, I believe that what you're saying to us as a church is give up on trying to do the impossible and lean into the God whom all things are possible. Lean into God, lean into the spirit by which all things are possible. Jesus, we wanna come to you as like little children, just saying, Lord, we cannot receive one good thing from heaven without you. We need your help, Jesus. And thank you that you are so willing to give it. Thank you that when we are weak, you are strong. I pray, Father, that these words would continue to stir up in our hearts, Father, and that you would lead us in the way forward. In your name I pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us for our weekend message. If you have any needs or prayer requests, please give us a call at 204-326-9020 or email prayer at myselfland.com. Once again, our phone number is 204-326-9020 and the email address is prayer at myselfland.com.